Hello, this is Robin Harford from eatweeds.co.uk and foragingcourses.com. I'm here with Emma Kidd, who has written an amazing book called First Steps to Seeing. So before all is revealed, what I'm going to do is just ask Emma to tell us a little bit about herself. Who is she? <laughs> because she started as a lingerie designer and has now written a book on waking up. So Emma... How did your journey start? How did you end up at Schumacher College? Mm. And how did you end up writing this book? Well, <laughs> um, so I, I write, I started my career as a designer. I was designing lingerie in Hong Kong and China. And whilst I was, whilst I was there, um, I learned a lot. I had got a lot of life experience um, in terms of mostly what, what was going a bit wrong <laughs> in the world? Um, so, social exploitation, um, environmental destruction, the countryside getting ripped down so that um, whole villages could be built around new garment factories in south of China. Um, I saw how damaging um, consumerism and globalisation were, and just how unhappy, basically. People were at all stages of the process, whether it was the ladies sewing garments in the factories um, or my my colleagues who weren't allowed really to be very creative or, or do anything particularly original or the people just buying more and more stuff, basically, in the shopping malls. So I decided that I needed to leave and start kind of asking some deeper questions as to how those things even came into being. First Steps to Seeing, your book, what, what's it about? Is it about seeing or is it about knowing or is it about both? It's about both, yeah. It's, it's first steps to seeing in the sense of not just seeing with your eyes, but seeing understanding, to really seeing something as it is, rather than just having um, a partial idea about it or a name or a label. It's first steps to seeing because it's a series of essentially practical exercises that guide you towards getting to know the way that you see the world better and just learning to pay attention of the way that you experience life um, so that you can then adjust yourself if you wish to to see or connect with life in in deeper ways or to notice more or yeah to start noticing what you don't a lot of it's noticing what you don't notice yeah so in your everyday life like realizing that you've walked down the same street 200 times maybe you but you've never looked up or you've walked down the same country line lane sorry like 200 times and you've you've never actually paid attention to the trees or the plants so it's just about you know, bringing attention to that yeah so I kind of it, I describe those experiences for me because I remember when I started my own exploration of waking up however people choose to define that I mean one of the buzzwords at the moment is mindfulness is a way of being present to the moment to experience life fully instead of this kind of habituated human the somnambulist the robotic habits that we we could just go through on a daily mm -hmm. basis um, and I remember when I was in Bath when I'd started my 
my my teaching my not teaching people but actually I was under the guidance of a mentor that I remember walking through the park well I walked through like you say a couple of hundred times and it just opened up to me in such richness that I felt fed mm. at my core yeah not just food but fed in my being and it was like wow that's yeah. quite extraordinary turning the ordinary into the extraordinary mm. just by being present which is what I find your book and the practical exercises certainly does now you mentioned this guy Goethe and there's this kind of thing of Goethean science which seems quite esoteric not in a kind of magical sense just in a kind of it's a little bit kind of fringe or hidden mm -hmm. away and um, most people won't know about it, but but what is Goethe in science? I mm. mean, who was Goethe? Um, okay, so Goethe was basically um, a... He was best known for his writing, um, I guess, uh, his poetry, his literature, his plays. But he was essentially a ridiculously keen observer of life. He realised for himself that through paying full attention to life and the way in which you experience it. So rather than through meeting a, a tree or a plant or a sky, um, through your idea of it or through theories or through what you think you already know about it, he realised that by putting that to one side and just giving your senses, uh, just, just giving full attention to your sensory experience, noticing the details, noticing the patterns, that you could just get to know something in a whole new way and in terms of itself. So rather than you imposing, you're allowing whatever it is that you're engaging with to speak in terms of itself. And that's, that's some, that can sound um, a little bit abstract, but it's, it's actually extremely concrete. Um, he realised that you, you don't need textbooks you don't need to go to university. You can just, just by being with something wholly and fully, by giving something your full attention, you can get to know it fully. Yeah, I mean, this, this you know, reflecting that back into foraging or and my own plant work, I like to throw the textbooks and the science out the window because I feel that that puts a barrier up to a lot of people. A lot of people aren't scientific think they're coming on a botany course and it's like no you're not coming on a botany course you're coming on a life course actually and so in using that I mean he came up with this term or someone just translated it I don't know maybe it was um this chap Henry Bortov exact sensorial imagination that was Goethe was that it? was Goethe yeah. yeah so the reason one of the reasons I wanted to interview is because in my own work I use not the format that you've done, but certainly I'm very much into meeting a plant and getting to know a plant and understanding a plant and learning to identify it later on mm. when there is no teacher or no book there, you know, that through the senses. And it seemed like we were walking a similar path, mm. just using different language to describe a similar process. Yeah. So what is exact sensorial imagination? It's, this, it's essentially the, the second stage of the process that Goethe used to get to know parts of nature. 
So what he would first do is called exact sense perception. So that's where he paid, he used his senses to pay full attention to something that he could see. So he would pay careful attention to the colour of a leaf, to the shape of a leaf, to the texture, um, and then to the whole plant. Um, and he would go back, let's say day after day, month after month, um, and study plants for, for many years and study them in different countries as well in different contexts. And sort of in between or after he had used his senses to observe something very carefully, he would then kind of close his eyes, use his mind to bring several of those encounters back to life again. So it's a, in our age, it's a bit like playing a DVD of the time you spent um, observing that plant. Um, but then by putting a few of those DVDs together, a few of those movies kind of of your experience together, you start to notice things or things become apparent that wouldn't necessarily occur to you in those individual instances. Um, so you might start to notice a, a pattern emerging that's kind of just shows part of the process of the plant or the the essential nature of the plant. So if you um, were observing nettle, it would be a nettleness. Yes, there would be a nettleness. That kind of followed you around whenever you met nettle yeah. wherever it was in the world. Yeah, so it's a lot, it's a lot about the quali qualities and character. It's the, more, it's the more kind of subtle aspects of, of something, but that make that thing unique. And does that mean that we are able to store, I mean store the, store the knowledge? So if I meet metal, metal one day and I do some exact sense, sensing and then bring it into sensorial imagination, will that enable me to be able to identify that later on down the line? easier than say if I was just going through a flower key and flipping through and oh god it's opposite leaves and which seems really linear and flat to me yeah two-dimensional you know our learning's quite two-dimensional isn't it yeah whereas this feels a lot richer it feels like I'm almost embracing the phenomena that I'm observing so in this in our instance it's plants so I'm it's like I'm I'm really becoming intimate yeah with that plant so Absolutely, it does. Um, it begins to live in you in a different way. And it's almost like the exact sensorial imagine kind of solidifies or grounds that initial experience again inside of you. So it kind of, it, it, it deepens it yet again. And I have a bit of a, a passion for neuroscience and learning as well. And, and, and I think this, this form of observing, of giving your your lived experience, your full attention, it enables you to recall those learnings, those experiential learnings in a different way, sort of, in much more, it kind of activates more long-term memory, okay. um, which I think is fascinating. And, and I came to that through my own lived experience when I realised that I could bring to mind an encounter with a plant, whereas, you know, I couldn't remember, I don't know what I'd uh, what I've read yesterday or something you know yeah. I've always thought I've had a bit of a terrible memory but this way of um, of of learning from life I I remember instantly so just by um, calling it into yeah your yeah yeah just by connecting with oh yeah just the can you know the 
the heart shape of that nettle leaf just by starting and then you can you you kind of you, you maybe start with that and then you oh yes so you know I remembered the kind of the jagged edges or I, I remembered the the shape or the color of the kind of spiny hairs and like the picture sort of comes back to life in you so what does that do for our experience of life I mean does that you say neuroscience does it enhance our well-being does it what does all this awakening waking up to life stuff do I mean we talked just before the interview and you know I asked myself the question what's the point of waking up surely it's a lot easier just to be jacked into the light boxes and and just to not think too deeply about anything because it can be quite painful sometimes it can also be quite pleasurable as well but it's like well, what is the purpose of all the the first steps to seeing the first steps to awakening it's the difference between living life in monochrome and and living life in technicolor like it um it just allows it allows for just such a richer deeper more authentically satisfying experience of life it enables you to see more than you could have ever possibly imagined and with that seeing comes meaningful for me life just becomes infinitely more meaningful because suddenly I realize that I can just get to know stuff just by being with it just by giving it the time of day or attention or and I've just not found anything you know certainly not in kind of mainstream modern culture that really does that for me it this it, it kind of aligns you with the the integrity of life um it, it really allows life to speak to you kind of in an uncensored way um and that might that's maybe it sounds a bit philosophical but um it's very experiential mm. it's about just using yeah just it's for me it's very liberating um i've always felt really constrained by kind of mainstream education or society or mainstream work practices or institutions and and actually this is you know this is a way of of me not needing any of that it's kind of sometimes i call it a democratization of knowledge that's a good one. Um, Great one. it stops it it stops true understanding from being elitist yeah. it says actually all you need um is a pair of eyes and some attention and you can get to know anything that you want mm. um you know given obviously there's rigor and discipline in there you have to really check what you're bringing every time mm. just check that you're not projecting onto something sure. i mean that's but the areas go. yeah but with practice you become sensitive to that and you learn to realize you know when it's you and when it's the other yeah so it's liberate it's liberating it's satisfying it's enlivening it's like going for me it, when I go and meet plants it's like there's an emptying out of myself yeah there is a surrendering of get Robin out the way get the humanness out the way and actually be filled up by this other yeah. whatever phenomena of nature you choose and thereby by emptying out the superficial crap basically that gets just comes in habitually I'm fed at a deep level. My connection to the natural world as a result is radically deeper yeah. and different than 
even to the point, I suppose, you know, the, the classifying, like Linnaeus was great, but, you know, classification is still a very head-centric yeah, thing. It's absolutely. not, oh, that's a daffodil, that's a, ne- a yeah. nettle. Well, great. Well, P, my ego is really tickled pink that it knows what a nettle looks like. But yeah. actually, I don't know the nettle. I no. know it from a book. and You know the name. And the name, and I know that it's opposite leaves. But actually, to meet to meet that plant... fully on what I call full immersion living Mm. full immersive living is something that is open to everybody for one thing and um and for me personally I think is is uh extremely important when we start moving into the areas of well-being Mm -hmm. and happiness absolutely and that you know the trinkets only go so far it feels people search for something more than just the, the veneer of life. Mm. They want a bit of depth. Yeah. You mentioned this chap, Henry Bortoff, mm. quite a lot. Mm-hmm. And he seems quite an interesting character. But who is he? Or was he? So he was. Um, so Henry um, studied physics with David Bohm at Birkbeck. He did quantum physics and the, uh, the problem of wholeness. And then he, he became a science teacher and he got really interested in the philosophy of science. And one of his main areas of research was in Goethean science and realised that Goethe had a way of seeing um, what he called wholeness. And so wholeness is that unique essential nature of something that it's, it is its kind of reason to be. And he realised that, you know, mainstream science misses that because it breaks everything down to the smallest part, it separates things. So it has a really kind of good mechanical um, understanding of something, but it doesn't really get to the true nature of anything. And he saw that the way Goethe was doing science did. It, it under, you know, Goethe... I got to know the qualities of things, the characteristics, the, yeah, not just, it, it was a move beyond the mere kind of um, physical and, and biological or botanical. Um, it took it another step. It got to know the depth and the life of something. Um, so would that be similar to say, you know, if I put on a scientist's head, I come into a room and there's chairs, there's carpet, there's bookshelves, there's books, pictures on the walls, but actually there's an ambience within that room mm. that isn't actually visible mm-hmm. or quantifiable other than purely through my own felt experience. Yeah. And therefore wholeness is taking in those other subtler, non rational mm-hmm. things yeah it's the it's what intri- is intrinsic to something yeah um but can't yeah it can't necessarily it can't be seen or touched yeah it's like it's it's what makes me emma it's the emma-ness but you can't see it yeah. and it's not the whole kind of my, of my physicality yeah yet you can experience it it's my personality if you will or you know everything kind of combined and everything in life has that. A stone has that, a rock has that, a plant has that, the sky has that. And it is perceptible, um, but not through the logical, analytical mind. Yeah. You have to be able to use both. 
Um, and the thing about the way in which our analytical mind works quite literally, I mean, and this is kind of, we've been researched in neuroscience and particularly in McGilchrist's work, um, is that when we name or label something, it's a bit like putting a screen between us and the world. So as long as our brain has done that instant meaning-making thing, it actually stops us from connecting with our experience. Yeah, it's like a big barrier. Yeah. We love our barriers, don't we? It makes yeah. us feel important yeah, and safe. Yeah, it's like a big or... shield, kind yeah. of, yeah. So in using exact sensorial imagination or exact sensing, um, Bortoff has this thing that you mentioned in your book, where he says, you can visualise things you can't see until you begin to see them. So, there's two steps you mentioned. Mm -hmm. The first one is actually paying attention, being really present, say, to the texture of the leaf, the, the patterning of the leaf, the smell of the leaf, mm -hmm. taste of the leaf, the leaf edges, all the bits, the parts that make up that leaf, all the little bits that make the totality of that leaf and yeah. therefore the totality of the plants. That's the step one. Yeah. Then there's the step two, which is when that leaf or that plant isn't in front of you. Yeah. And you're wanting to deepen your recall or your knowledge of that plant, then you do exact sensorial imagination, which yes. is calling it, what I would say, calling it to mind Absolutely. in Robin language. Yeah. So when Bortoff then says you can visualise things you can't see until you begin to see them, what's he mean? Actually, I'm mm. going to backtrack on that, mm -hmm. because having called it to mind, you also mentioned in your book, you've got this lovely, lovely exercise, and I have to say, Emma's book has got some of the clearest practical exercises that you can basically do today on this whole kind of being present to the moment. Mm. I didn't think I'd actually end up saying something like that, because I've been involved in awareness practices for 30 years and it is really really clear how you've encapsulated especially something as esoteric as Gertian science which mm. no one's actually ever been able to really mm. give me any precise mm -hmm. method and your book does mm. it which I'm really pleased with so there's the there's the calling to mind but then you mentioned you mentioned this going using that process on your hand and that when you call it to mind actually there's bits that are missing mm. So it's yeah. this kind of thing of like we think we're awake and think we're conscious beings, but actually we're deeply asleep. Yeah, and distracted. And distracted. Most often. Yeah. Yeah. So when you use exact sensorial imagination, it makes apparent all that you've missed. It helps you, sorry, to notice what you haven't noticed fully enough. Um, and in, in the practice of getting to know something, and this can be really applied to, to any part of life. Um, I use it to reflect on my relationships, not so yeah. to, not just to get to know plants, but it could be with your just your family or your friends or just different circumstances in your life. But you just start to notice what you've not paid attention to, so that then you know you can go back and pay attention to it. So if you're with a plant and you've not noticed quite how the leaf attaches itself to the stem, then next time you can go back and, re back and revisit that in your exact sensing. But in terms of what Henry meant um, about just being able to see something different, he was alluding to the dynamics and the processes of life. So when I meet a nettle in the present moment, I see it as a still being. Mm. 
but obviously it's a living being it's sure. you know it's constantly growing and coming out and going out of being now you know some leaves are dying off some leaves are coming through so if you let's say you went to observe a nettle um i don't know every week for a month but then you brought back in sequence those observations yeah you would start to almost be able to animate that perception so that's a bit like the flip book so you have a series of still images yeah but when you move through it quickly it looks like it's moving yes so you can do that with the plant but you can only do that in your imagination because in real time you can't see the plant growing no. you could do it with a video camera it's like time lapse, time lapse. Yeah. so but you can do that time lapse yourself yes yeah. so is there a way okay not to sound completely off the planet if you go to indigenous cultures and ask them you know how did the how did the first humans learn that plants could be used as food or medicine or the utilitarian uses they tend to i won't say all the time they tend to say the plants told us mm. which to the modern world sounds completely cuckoo then there's the usual thing in in the modern world well of course it was trial and error but you know a hundred thousand years ago when we were kind of just kind of getting it together as homo sapiens there weren't enough homo sapiens around to do trial and error. We'd have died. So, kind of throw that into the mix. Using Gertian science, how would that explain? Are they onto something? I mean, are, are they just... Is that just a, a, a myth that's been told in indigenous cultures all around the planet, coincidentally? <laughs> Funny that. Yeah. But, you know, with tribes that have never met other tribes all saying the same thing. Yeah. What's going no, on? No, absolutely not. All they've done is they've learned, they've realised that by paying careful enough attention to how they attend to the plants, that that understanding arises and it arises in their experience. So if they're very carefully sort of tasting on the tip of their tongue a leaf of a plant and they're still and they're noticing what's going on in their body, maybe they feel a drawing sensation on their scalp or they feel a throbbing sensation in their back or that's starting to give them information yeah. as to what that plant kind of may be do when they kind of take it or work with it so they were just onto this kind of experiential way of learning yeah maybe they're, they're kind of they didn't have that thing that we seem to have in western culture where our rational mind constantly gets in the bloody way of our experience all yeah. the time so they were just much more attuned um, to what was going on in their body both kind of both physically but then I would say also in terms of intuitive experience as well, because that's the, say, third step of this process. Um, and that that's just, whereas exact sensing is directing your attention, almost like an arrow, outside yeah. of your body and to the plant, so to those details. Then what the kind of intuitive stage is, is just opening a space in yourself. So it is like a, a stillness. And that space then gives the possibility, and this sounds a little bit odd, but for, for that plant to live into you. Yeah. And that's when that kind of the wholeness or the essential nature or those qualities or key characteristics kind of tends to take root. Um, and, it, and it sounds a bit strange, I know, to our rational minds, but I guess... I'll... But that's inspiration, isn't it? Isn't this... 
Isn't this how solutions have, have come upon? Mm. You see, I was in India. Literally, I got back two weeks ago. And I was in a community of people who were very much into Ayurvedic culture, Ayurvedic medicine. Yeah. And I asked the question, how did the forest sages 6,000 years ago know that that mineral, that plant, that whatever they're using as medicine could be used to treat the human. Mm. Now, I have to remember, 6,000 years ago, there were forest sages. It was full forest, full immersion in the, in the forest. And this chap said to me, he said, well, from the Ayurvedic, from the Vedic belief system, knowledge exists the whole time. It is mm. always there. It always is and always will be there. Knowledge of the world. And it's humans just have to kind of jack into it in order to download the data. Mm -hmm. So I went, well, that sounds all very twee, but, you know, what are you talking about here? And he said, well, what happens is that if you imagine a clenched fist as being your soul, mm -hmm. not to scare a multitude of our listeners off, but let's call it what it is, from the Ayurvedic belief system. If your fist is a soul, then there's another, like an onion, then mm -hmm. there's a, a, a ring of onion skin around it, or a layer of onion, which is your feelings. Then there's another layer, which is your emotions. Then there's another layer, which is your thinking. And the guy, the doctor who was explaining it to me, he said, the problem with the modern world is that, is that we... We basically stick in the thinking layer. But by actually revealing, peeling off the thinking layer, the emotional layer, because often people mm. say, well, I'm getting this feeling mm -mm, from this bump. And I've that's seen the it. projection. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, their yeah. own stuff yeah. that's been chucked out onto that phenomena that they're observing. Then you get the feeling sense. And I remember Stephen Harrod Booner, the writer who taught at Schumacher mm -hmm. and has written plant books, he, he was written a book on on actually writing, nothing to do with plants, mm -hmm. just on writing, and that, you know, gram grammatists, which I think he's rhyming with fascists, basically, <laughs> you know, will pick you up, but you haven't written that correctly, because actually what a, a, a good writer does is there's a feeling sense that mm -hmm. comes through, even though the words may not be grammatically correct, there is, an, there is that quality of feeling that comes through. So as a reader, you know exactly what is being communicated, even yeah. if... Your rational mind, your grammarian yeah. is picking up and picking the, the, the language structure to bits. That's not important. Mm -hmm. It's what's the impression that yeah. comes through. And so the Ayurvedics were saying that, you know, if you can get down to that feeling layer, you know, you, you've, you've, you've removed the buffers to life and therefore you are getting the data almost directly and they said, and I said, yeah, well, that was all great 6,000 years ago, but, you know, we got modern stuff. And they said, it doesn't matter, you can do it with anything. Yes. Anything in the world. Is that a similar thing? Yeah, absolutely. And that's basically what First Steps to Seeing is trying to do, is to help you peel those onion layers away. And it's even, um, it's making that, it's showing that possibility even. Because this is what surprised me when I came here that I had gone 27 years of my life and nobody even told me that those onion layers were there and that beneath them there was something else 
and that something else happened to be profoundly more exciting and meaningful um, than I could have ever imagined until I experienced it. Yeah. So in the greater, greater whole, I mean, you know, I'm a firm believer, I, I love Taoism, that's always been a bit of a thing for me, and, and from my understanding of Taoism, I observed the, the Chinese sages and whatever, you know, observing nature, and because they realised that we're a very young species, actually, and realising that the other species in the world are considerably older, some of them, that they could learn structures and forms, and, and they ended up creating this, this Chinese culture that was phenomenal compared mm. to what, in Britain, we'd have still been kind of bashing each other over there with clubs and, you know, really awful-looking clothes. Yeah. But they were really quite advanced in their culture, culture in a good way, not a bad way. And it's a similar thing. There's these traditions around the world where... And is that, is that, I suppose the question, is that inspiration? Is that what comes through by this, by revealing, getting rid of these onion nails? Do solutions arise? So it's, because we're, you know, we're, we all recognise, well, most of us do, if we're not into denial, that the world's pretty messed up, because yeah. of the human species. So to get out of the, the problem, you know, to get out of this problem, do these practices enable us to take science beyond the kind of brick wall it's hitting yes. in not being able to come up with any kind of comfortable solutions to the problems that we've created yeah. as a human species yeah absolutely it does um and I, it is linked to einstein's um you can't solve a problem on the same level at which it's created because actually all science is is a reflection of its own way of seeing. It's sure. a reflection of that kind of logical, analytical, which sees things as, as separate. It, it doesn't look for the connections between, it doesn't look um, for, for the dynamic, complex relationships, it doesn't sense, it, it ignores context completely. In terms of a, sort of a mainstream mechanistic way of science that, that isolates and abstracts things, all it's revealing is a partial way of knowing the world. It's a human being using parts of itself to get to know something. But what this Gertian way of seeing, or the way of seeing that you work with when you work with plants, it's using your whole self to know something so then you get to know it in context you get to see the qualities the patterns the dynamics the relationships you get to see quite literally the whole picture not just what is extrinsic but what is intrinsic you know what what it's um, connected to just how how it works and how it is and so I think a lot of the problems that we're facing in the world is because we're only using part of ourselves to, to work with it so if we were to start using the whole of ourselves, the solutions would, I think, immediately become apparent. And not just solutions, but genuine kind of opportunities for resolving stuff at the root. Yeah. So that those issues aren't ever actually an issue again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where we could go on and on and on. I hope people have got some semblance, some sense of Emma's book, because... First off, get it, read it, and do some of the exercises, if not all of them. Because in order to meet the world in any 
meaningful, intimate way, in order for me to plant in any meaningful, intimate way, it's a toolkit that you can use. And like I said at the beginning, I was quite surprised because I thought, oh God, it's going to be one of these really dry books. But actually it's not. It's a really doable, practical book. You don't have to have PhDs, like Emma really mentioned. It's not about being a scientist and foraging and plant work and getting to know plants. Is you know, at some level, the botany really limits us. It's really fun and important, and don't get me wrong, I have been accused by some of my botany friends to be anti-botany. I'm not. But what I try and get people to understand is that there's this far deeper quality to the, our experience, not only with plants, but with the natural world at large, and that to get back, to get connected to landscape uh, and ourselves, ultimately, as a result of doing these practices, just lifts life completely mm. up quite a few notches and you don't need money you don't need status you don't need power to do it it's as you called it mm -hmm. the democratization of education which yeah. is absolutely on the mark so being really blessed to finally get you because i know you, you shoot <laughs> off all over the place thank you for so, writing such an extraordinary book in such a clear way because i can tell you you know, I've hung out with Schumacher a number of times, but, you know, talk to people going in science and you may as well be talking to me about, I don't know, aliens, because uh -huh. it just doesn't compute in my brain. But you put it so it really computes really clearly. And that, as far as I know, I'm pretty certain it's one of the first ones that's done it that clearly. So much blessed that you're on the planet, Emma. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and for people who want to reach you or get in touch with you, I don't know whether you're a bit of a hermit or you're not, do you have a website or how do people, people yeah, find you? I have just started a new website called livingattentively.org um, and I'm going to start putting some practical exercises and stuff on there so that people don't even have to read the book if they don't want to. Um, but that's, yeah, and my details are on there if anybody wants to get in touch with me. And you'll be doing workshops, I hope? Yeah, I'm going to start doing workshops I think that'd be really in terms important. of all, yeah, all manner with plants and people. Brilliant, Yeah. brilliant. Thanks a lot. Thank you.